Welcome to another episode of Growing Bagels. I am Chris Douglas, and as always, I'm joined by Kevin Mooney. Kevin, hello. Hi, Chris. And Jason Hamo. Jason, how are you? Good, Chris. How are you? Doing very well. Uh, gentlemen, we have, in my opinion, the best follow-up interview conversation to our last one. Last week, or I'm sorry, last episode, we had a purchasing manager for us, Rebo State Dining Services, Tamara Cunningham. If you have not listened to that episode by now, what are you doing? Seriously, give it a listen, throwingbagels.com, wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, for my money, our next guest here is among the best professors I've ever had, uh, especially at Oswego, uh, and he wasn't even in our major. He is a history professor at Oswego State University. He still teaches the best class I've ever taken in Oswego, Social and Cultural History of Sport. Dr. Christopher Mack, welcome to the show. Thanks very much for having me, guys. It's great to see you all again, and I'm very honored to be here. Well, we're honored to have you on here. Uh, we have we have so much to get to uh, with you, uh, and if it's all right, let's kick things off here. Uh, as you recall, you know, twenty some years ago, I love soccer. <laughs> I think you remember that. Uh, and there's a quote in the book written by uh, David Goldblatt: uh, "The ball is round," uh, by the Liverpool legendary manager Bill Shankly. Uh, some people believe, and I'm quoting, some people believe football is a matter of life and death. I'm very disappointed with that. I can assure you it is much, much more than that. <laughs> uh, Chris, do you believe uh, this sort of mindset will ever change, uh, that football or sport in general is bigger than life? Um, gee whiz. I mean, come on, guys. Look at all the gear that we have on. And I'm back <laughs> in my Orioles water glass today and, uh, you know, Rangers caps. Uh, yeah, I mean, it is bigger than us, right? Um, um, we talk about that in the class that, you know, how important identity is in sport. And um, it's certainly bigger than us, right? We hand it down to our, our kids and, you know, our other family members that have become such a huge part of our lives and extends beyond our lives that, um, yeah, Bill Shankly, you know, he's he was a legend for many reasons. And, you know, even though he was a Liverpool coach, I, you know. I think he was right about that. Has the migration in Europe helped shape football or just sport in general? And I'll give this example. The French national team has players like Paul Pogba, whose parents immigrated from Guinea, uh, Kylian Mbappe, whose mother came from Algeria and his father is from Cameroon, and Golo Kante, whose parents are from Mali. Has that uh, changed at all? Has uh, the, the outlook of how we look at sport not from just a Nationals uh, perspective, but just from people from all over the place playing for a particular country. Right. Yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, all those examples you gave were fantastic. And in France, obviously, that has really driven their success um, in the World Cup, you know, over the last uh, generation. Um, and, you know, you can look at every every country in Europe and find the same thing, right? I mean, for good or ill, I was a huge Mesut Ertzel fan, right? And so that mm -hmm. Turkish immigration into Germany was hugely influential on German soccer, still remains so, right? I mean, uh, now I'm an Arsenal fan, as you all remember. And so, you know, I hate to say, call out Ilke Gindawan, but, oh, you know, and it's so same deal, right? <laughs> um, you know, in England as well, Bukayo Saka, uh, all those guys. So, yeah, I mean, it does transcend um, boundaries in every way, right? I mean, that's why it is the global game, right, that we talked about that in class all the time. Um, and it, that you, you don't see that 
diminishing any, anytime soon, right? And it's exciting to me to see the strides that MLS is making. And you look at the players, you know, from uh, the Caribbean and uh, Central and South America that are coming here and having such great success and now finding their way into Europe and uh, U.S. homegrown players as well. So, yeah, um, that's the, the the beauty of soccer, right? That it, there is that, de- that degree of trans uh, migration and the interpenetration of cultures and peoples. Um, and it really it's heartening in a whole host of ways too, right? That you see the breakdown of some of the traditional nationalisms as these um, immigrant peoples come in and then have tremendous success and become nationalized and part and parcel of their new countries, right? So um, sport serves that that purpose as well, right? Um, to to change the, the landscape of societies and cultures in a whole host of ways. It's kind of what brings people together, you know, like how much we disagree with each other nowadays kind of brings everyone together to a certain extent. That is true. That is true. Um, you know, I, I, I'm sure you guys recall that uh, we used to have a sportsmanship day uh, symposium um, in Oswego. And this year was our 15th year. Dr. Tim Delaney started that in sociology. Um, and, you know, that is really what it's all about. I think in many ways, t- to me, the reason why we have those courses and now we have the sports studies minor is because the lessons that we learn in sport and the whole idea of sportsmanship, you know, we really can use a lot of that right now, you know, in our politics and in our culture, um, both nationally and globally. Um, but that idea of, you know, beating one another's brains out, but then shaking hands at the end of, uh, you know, our discussion, our election, whatever it may be. That's huge, you know. I mean, and the the more we can practice that, I think the better off we'll all be. What is it in particular about soccer that has made it the number one global sport? Yeah, well, um, I don't know if you guys remember, but that's one usually one of the questions on uh, the first exam, right? Um, but part of it, part of it is obviously accessibility, but it was also just because the game, I think, because it did, you know, begin in England. England has that, uh, you know, global empire and is able to, you know, move the sport readily through, you know, students, business people, military installations throughout the empire. And so it fosters the spread and development of the sport. Uh, And then also what's great about soccer is then it's because it's relatively inexpensive, right? I mean, you can play with just about anything. Then it's picked up by all those, you know, colonial peoples developed in their own way. And then in many ways, you know, then turned against the colonial occupier. So, yeah, um, I think a lot of it has to do with that, just its origins uh, in Britain and then how it spreads around the world. And um, and then with that embrace of it, um, you know, nations giving it their own their own spin, their own twist. I mean, you know, obviously the one that pops to mind is Brazil. Um and even though, uh, again, you know, I think that Argentina and Uruguay get short shrift uh, in the English speaking world, they were huge in developing their own particular styles, right? Uh, even before Brazil did. Um, yeah, you can think about all kinds of different places around the globe where that's the case, right? Um, and it's not just in soccer and in, in a whole host of other sports. I mean, cricket is another classic one in the British sports world, right? That once it gets to India and to Pakistan, um, Jamaica, uh, you know, becomes their own sport and their passion and, you know, look what happens. So, yeah, but soccer, I think it's the accessibility. Um, I mean, I, again, you guys probably heard the story in class that, uh, 
you know, I was not a soccer fan, like growing up, I was, you know, a good old American football, baseball, basketball. And I thought soccer was, you know, like watching paint dry, but, uh, you know, my passion <laughs> for it developed in my graduate studies. And then, um, you know, the more that I traveled to Europe, the more I became exposed to it. Um, now, you know, when Arsenal's on, that's what I'm doing, you know, and everybody in my household is too. And, um, you know, so yeah, now I think I can't, I can't yet say that it's usurped the, you know, position of American football in my life, but it's pretty darn close. Will anything usurp uh, soccer as the top global sport? Gee whiz. Well, the NFL is trying really hard to penetrate into Europe. Right. But, um, I can't really see that happening now, you know, I mean, because of the, you know, the football begins in the 1860s in England. It's an awful long time. Other sports around the globe. I don't, I don't think they're really going to you know, take over. Probably the bigger one is the question of whether or not esports someday is going to, you know, be able to take that title. We'll see. Um, I don't know. You know, I'm an old man. I hope not, but, uh, you know, we'll see how that goes, but I, I just don't see how the position of soccer can be challenged globally. Uh, you mentioned esports. With the rise of esports, what might sports look like 20 years from now? I mean, do you think it actually will change at all? It just seems, though, that, you know, sport, um, especially professional sports as we have them now, are such a juggernaut. I, I can't really see them getting knocked off that pedestal anytime soon. But who knows? I mean, mm-hmm. you know, especially the NFL, um, you know, if we start to have more and more concerns about head injuries and brain trauma and things like that. I don't know how rugby, frankly, is they address it, but they seem to be skating it a little bit more, not addressing it quite as directly as the NFL. So maybe then esports demographically, you know, kids do not play organized sport like they used to. I think, again, maybe that's another feather in soccer's cap that I, I think that there are so many, you know, kids in youth soccer that that's something they're going to continue. And parents who are concerned about, you know, head injuries and brain trauma are going to steer their kids in those directions. So we'll see, but um, I don't, I don't know, but you guys would know this better than I do. You know, I, my son is my, you know, connection to the esports world. And so, you know, he, I think he's 23 now he's starting to lose a little bit of his, you know, enthusiasm. So I think, I mean, obviously it's, you know, billion dollar industry, but I, I can't see it knocking, you know, our traditional sports off their pedestal anytime in our lifetimes, but we'll see. It's interesting for sure. I mean, you know, we're having exploratory committees on campus about having, you know, esports at Oswego and um, wow. those conversations are ongoing, but um We'll see where that goes. But, um, you know, part of it is just that, you know, as a recruitment tool and things like that. But, um, you know, the, for the costs of putting some of those progress, programs into place, we have, you know, 100 or so sports studies minors. So we get a lot more people interested and through the door um, and involved in academic programs that way than in the esports teams will ever be able to, to field, I think. So. But, you know, it's obviously something that a lot of young people uh, enjoy. So we'll see where it goes. What impact did the United States have uh, on the history of sports? 
Yeah, obviously baseball is, you know, huge for the, for uh, for America. That's our first big professional sport. Um, obviously remains one of those great sports still in, in, in America. Uh, but it served as, you know, as soccer did elsewhere around the globe in America, it really serves as a mirror of the culture. It tells us a lot about, you know, what's going on in large society politically, economically, et cetera, all of the phenomena that are taking place in the larger society show up in the history of baseball. Gambling issues in the 19th century were huge. Uh, player conduct and the relationship between owners and players was, uh, you, you know, really reflected what was going on in the factories and the workplaces and attempts to unionize and organize. The players were doing that, you know, all the way back with John Montgomery Ward in 1880s the players league. Um, so, you know, I, it, it, again, to me, the reason why it's such a great um, entree for students, whether historians or no, like when you guys came in and took the classes, you get to see how there is this, you know, interweaving imbrication of sport and society and how they impact one another um, in really profound ways. Right. So baseball certainly does that for us. And then, you know, uh, if you recall, when we talked about Babe Ruth, you know, talk about Babe Ruth, talk about Jackie Robinson, talk about, you know, those great individuals in any particular sport and how they really do mirror their eras. Right. I mean, Ruth, you know, what would Babe Ruth look like? You know, maybe he's like Mike King Kelly in the 1880s and 1890s. But, um, you know, being in the in New York, in the roaring 20s, you know, transforming the game like he does. Um, you know, it just seems like everything fits together, you know, miraculously almost for him to become, you know, the babe, right? I mean, everybody knows Babe Ruth everywhere. Um, but then again, the 20s are fascinating because you not only have Babe Ruth, but you have Jack Dempsey and you have, you know, uh, Bobby Jones and you have all these, you know, uh, Walter Hagen, or the you know, my favorite from Rochester, New York, right? Who uh, really creates professional golf. Um, and so you have this just era sort of of sports heroes, right? And sports writers. So the twenties are a pretty spectacular time in the history of American baseball and history of American sport. Um, and again, because they, they give us, you know, these characters who allow us to more deeply understand, you know, who we are and what we're all about in those particular periods of time. So, um, you know, it's endlessly fascinating to me to, I was at, I was in Baltimore last weekend, went to see Orioles Yankees game. And, um, you know, every time I walk into Camden Yards and I've got the, the statues of, you know, Babe Ruth outside and you think about this, you know, kid and the circumstances that he grew up in in Baltimore, um, you know, and as I always remind everyone, he was an Oriole before he was a Red Sox or a Yankee, <laughs> Red Sox or a Yankee, right? Um, yeah. But, uh, you know, I always just chuckle to myself to think that it all started, you know, from such a circumstances in that uh, in that city so pretty amazing stuff so you know speaking of like the 20 you know in that early era of baseball um you know go back to the 1918 white Sox, right is betting on sports basically as old as sports itself yeah i mean i think it really is you know i mean gambling is as old as human beings um you know, we've got all kinds of evidence from the ancient world of, you know, gambling of all kinds of all, all different sorts. Um, and certainly in sport, it's been there right from the very beginning in some way, shape or form. 
certainly in early baseball, there was, there was tremendous controversy because there was so much gambling underway. And if the, you know, the perceived and actual influence of, you know, organized crime figures and their impact on the game, we know players were throwing games in the 1870s and 1880s. And so, yeah, I mean, it's, we know it was there. Same thing in soccer, you know, in, in Britain in the 1870s, 80s, 90s, et cetera. Um, it was, it's, it was always interesting to me that, you know, soccer had, had come to, to uh, an arrangement already with gambling so much sooner than American sports. And I just kind of thought it was, you know, an extension of our sort of Protestant, you know, up Calvinist, uh, strict, you know, upbringing <laughs> values and morals, I guess. Um, but now it is kind of like, you know, to, to have been somebody who was there before all this, the gambling stuff. And now it is a little bit off putting. Um, although I do like the JB smooth commercials. So, you know, <laughs> I, I gotta say that, although, although I'm not so sure the Mannings really are that, uh, are, are great spokespeople, but you know, those, those are pretty funny. Um, but yeah, I think that it's always been there. It's interesting. The premier league just uh, decided that they're not going to allow gambling on jerseys anymore for advertisers. Um, and I was kind of shocked by that. Uh, I was pretty surprised. Um, but yeah, we'll see what happens going down the road. It's actually quite common uh, around other countries as well in Europe. Uh, they right. actually cut that out. So that's true. just following suit at this point. Right. That's true. And then, uh, you know, because Emirates can pretty much just sponsor everybody and uh, they'll all have the same jersey. (laughs) In Saudi Arabia. Yikes. We're going to switch over to kind of the history of of your class Um, and let's talk about you and your and your and your class for a little bit. How much has the history of sports course changed um, over time since basically since its inception? Right. Yeah. 1995. Holy smokes. That's when I first started teaching that class. To be honest, it hasn't changed a tremendous amount. Um, And a part that had to do, although it should, and I've been trying to edge in that direction more recently, you have to always be guided by, you know, what's out there and what people were researching and what the good solid academic uh, histories were. And, you know, as you guys, you know, um, Chris was talking about the Goldblatt book, and David Goldblatt did that ball of round book. And there's, that's still, you know, pound for pound, the best history of soccer um, that's out there. And he still does great work. Um, you know, did, has a book out on, did a book on the Premier League itself and the role of the Premier League in English soccer. Um, and his book on the Olympics I use too, because it's just very accessible. Um, the one that I used to use, you know, just Alan Gutman was one of the great uh, founders of the history of sport um, as an academic pursuit. Um, but, you know, he just, I, I don't think he's passed away yet, but he, he's up there and it's just, you know, the, it ran out of new editions. So you have to be just guided by what's out there academically and what's uh, useful in the class. I can't wait until, you know, there's uh, hockey or better books about the NBA. Um, the students definitely, you know, especially at Oswego, uh, you know, more hockey content would be fantastic um, and I'd love to do it. Uh, I was thinking about that today. Actually, I was like, wow, you know, when I was a kid, there were 12 teams in the NHL um, and the expansion was 67, 68 to get to that 12. 
So, you know, I was, I was kind of like, man, I kind of like grew through this whole phenomenon, right? Um, but yeah, we don't have great books um, on either of those, you know, anything that's close to like the David Goldblatt books. Um, the NFL, the one that I use now, that one's pretty good, the um, Dick Crapo books. Um, but again, even in the, and, you know, there are some others that I used when you guys were in there. Michael Lauriard's done some really good work also. So that's what I'm guided by is like, what can I get and put into students' hands that's, you know, solidly researched and, you know, well-written um, so it's accessible to people and, uh, you know, that they'll be willing to sit down and read it, which, I mean, that's the great thing about that sports class. I'm like, it's sports people. Come on. You got to want to read this. <laughs> right. I mean, that's why you're here, right? <laughs> that one usually isn't too hard, you know, although that gold bet book, people get a little nervous, you know, but. As I always say, it's good for the tricep development. Just get that bad boy <laughs> up there and you know, serves two purposes. Um, but other than the, but the content's pretty much the same um, and trying to keep it as a global sport history class. So we have soccer, we have the Olympics and then uh, the U.S. stuff. It's baseball and football. And the bigger problem is, you know, as you recall, just getting it all in um, and doing justice to the to material. How has the teacher-student relationship changed in the last 25 years, especially with the advent of technology that's, uh, you know, we didn't have when we were taking a class? Yeah, what's the big thing? The big thing is, you know, I mean, we have access to, you know, more things that I can put up, you know, snippets and clips of things. Um, but I still rely on a lot of, you know, Ken Burns baseball, uh, you know, series, videos. Yeah, you can't beat those. I love it. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, those things are pretty much the same as far as like student engagement, though. I think it is, you know, students are people are fascinated about this thing that they all love. Right. And the fact that you get to actually study it um, in an academic fashion and see how it fits in with the larger, you know, historical, social, cultural uh, landscape. Um you know, I don't think students oftentimes, you know, if you think about your own experiences, if that's the way you're looking at it. Um, but I do think that when, pe you know, students are in there and you start to see how, oh, yeah, this is like, you know, the labor movement or this is a reflection of, you know, larger social and political, you know, struggles that are going on in the First World War, the Second World War. You can see, you know, issues of race, gender, ethnicity, um, you know, all of those things in the class and you start to see how, you know, what you thought was just something for fun really is something that can have a profound impact, not only on your life, but on everyone else's. So, um, you know, that I think is really the same. I think student enthusiasm for the class is still the same. The sports studies minor program that we started, I think, um, has only helped to foster that. So, you know, that's been a great boon the last, what is it now? Probably almost 10 years. I'm jealous um, of that class. <laughs> well, that was so cool, especially for you guys, like all the, you know, for, for all the, the common broadcasting and German, journalism people, the bit school of business, um, you know, it's, it's the vast majority of the minors are not, you know, history students. Mm -hmm. um, and it's great that we have, you know, such broad participation across campus. There's nine programs that are involved in that. So it's really, really cool. And then we did have um, Dr. Delaney and I took students abroad as part of that too. So we had students go to Ireland and study Irish sports. Nice, uh, you know, uh, hurling and Gaelic football, and you know, it was a lot amazing. of fun. 
uh, and Barcelona we went to too, which was great because we hit the Olympics. We hit um, soccer, obviously, although I still haven't seen a Barca game for crying out loud live. So every time we took students there, they were out of town. So we went to see Espanol, which in its own, it was a lot of fun as well. And, yeah, you know, still La Liga. That's okay. Yes. And a different, you know, a little diff- different twist. Um, but it gives you a way to really focus on the rivalry between Barcelona and Espanol and talk about, the, again, the politics, you know, inside Catalonia and through Spain. So it was actually really a fun and, and they were awesome. Uh, and then we took students to see uh, Barca basketball, nice. which was really cool. Um, and they were awesome to us, too. They like put us in, took us down on the court. We got to meet the players, got photographs taken. There were a couple of uh, Americans on the squad at the time when we were there. And so, you know, when they heard Americans, they came over and talked to the students. So it was really cool. So that was, you know, all part of sports studies. And, you know, we had tremendous support from the administration too. So it's been great. Is uh, Spigo's sports minor program, is that really one of the uh, foremost uh, programs of its kind in, in the SUNY system? It's a very good question. I, I, I don't think there, there, I'm not, I don't think there are any programs like that minor programs mm-hmm. like that elsewhere in the SUNY system. Um, at least I'm not aware of them off the top of my head. I've also served as the faculty athletic representative, NCA faculty athletic representative at uh, Oswego for a long time. And so when we have our meetings with the other SUNYAC members, none of my colleagues, I don't recall anybody talking about anything like that. So Hmm. I'm not aware of it, but um, yeah, I think it's pretty unique uh, for for SUNYAC. If you could expand on on your role as faculty athletics representative, what what do you... What do you uh, do in that role particularly? Yeah. So every NCAA institution, you know, division one, two or three has a faculty athletics representative and your job is basically serve as a liaison between the student athletes, the athletic department and the faculty and, you know, uh, college uh, administration as well. So all the uh, faculty athletic reps are appointed by the presidents Um and we report directly to the presidents or to the you know, chief operating officer or, uh, in my case now, the vice president um, mm. for student affairs. Um, but uh, we have to have access to the president to, you know, to fulfill our role, which is to basically serve as another level of oversight um, of the program and to take care of student welfare and academic concerns first and foremost. And so, you know, most of the, I mean, thank goodness at Oswego, we've got, uh, you know, people who do a fantastic job and are on top of things. Um, and I've never had any major, you know, incidents or issues that I've had to deal with. Um, you know, it's a whole nother world in division one. And when you go to the NCA convention, you talk to those people, they're like, if I don't have six violations every month, then I don't feel like I'm doing my job, you know, but um, <laughs> yeah, I, we don't have that, thankfully, um, you know, and that is the beauty of the division three model. Um, and uh, again, there's so much uh, coordination between administration, athletic department, also been very blessed to have worked with you know tremendous people in the athletic department all the athletic directors and coaches um i always you know highlight we had an inter- intercollegiate athletic board uh meeting last week and uh, we just finished an equity review of the uh, oswego athletic programs 
and we did very, very well. I mean, there were a few things that we needed to work on, minor things, um, some that uh, really facility stuff. Uh, you know, Laker is still Laker. It's a tough building. Um, but as far as like access for everyone, um, we do a great job of providing, you know, the best we can for, you know, men's and women's teams. And the coaches all do that and they recruit fantastic student athletes. Um, the student athletes are always, uh, their GPAs are always higher than the general student population. And so they're as motivated uh, in the classroom as they are on the athletic fields. Um, and we're very fortunate in that regard. And certainly for me, that's the case too. So normally the things I have to take care of are just um, helping to facilitate, you know, searches and things like that in an athletic department. Um, if there are issues concerning attendance, um, you know, again, our administration makes it very clear every year that, you know, it's a legitimate excuse for students to miss classes, to go to athletic competitions, and that uh, that's something they can't be penalized for. Um, and our faculty have, you know, become much better about that uh, over the years. So I really only rarely have an in situation where I have to talk to a faculty member about that. And vice versa, not you know, only a handful of times have I had faculty come to me and say, you know, so-and-so student athlete is just, you know, call it having, I have an issue with something. Um, and so that's what I do. I just kind of like put out those little fires, but they the really, they have been just tiny little brush fires. We haven't had any great conflagrations. So yeah, I don't know. Maybe it's time for me to, to go before I have one. I don't know. No, um, no, but again, it's the coaches do a great job of, you know, yeah keeping on top of things and as does the athletic director and staff. So uh, how closely do you work with the title nine uh, compliance officers? Yeah, I don't do, um, you know, uh, we have Lisa Avineski who's done a great job as our title nine um, point person and coordinator for the last few years. And, um, you know, and she has, you know, purview over all aspects of Title IX, right? Um, and athletics is only a small part of that. Mm -hmm. um, years ago in the 80s, even before I got there, we did have a Title IX violation. Um, and we've worked really hard to remedy that situation. And we have. Uh, and that equity review found the same thing. Um, but that's all, you know, that's part of my job, really, is if I saw that there were equity violations somewhere, and it would behoove me to come forward and talk about those to the athletic director and the president administration. Um, but we don't. And, you know, Title IX um, has a three-prong test. Uh, and so you evaluate all of your teams and facilities using that test. And, um, you know, we did that very, you know, thoroughly and conscientiously. And we, we found that, you know, we are doing our level best to be in compliance and, you know, pushing all the time to, 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 to facilitate the movement and advancement of all the programs. So it was good news. Uh, speaking of, of title nine, right. It's been 51 years now, yeah. right. Um, recently the U S women's national team had that lawsuit that they, that they wanted equal pay. Um, obviously they've performed way better than the men's national team has over the years. Um, and they they won and they did get their 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 just due. But what were your thoughts on on the on the whole equal pay for, you know, for the women, you know, 
as far as the soccer goes, you know, it's different for other sports, but for soccer, you know, the women's team has been so, you know, good for so long. Right. Yeah. And it wasn't just, it wasn't just equal pay. It was like facilities and just the treatment for travel. And I mean, it was just such a flagrant abuse, not of just equity in general. Right. And especially as you suggest for a team that has been so successful, um, I don't know what it is about athletic institutions and administrations, but USA soccer, you know, again, kind of, as I suggested, the IOC and FIFA, um, they just made so many wrong steps and so many wrong headed decisions. And then when, you know, to, to have to have the U S women's national team go to court to force them to, you know, move towards greater equity and pay and compensation and facilities and treatment um, just seems so boneheaded. I mean, it, it, it should never get to that, you know, that stage. Um, and the same thing with ANCA and its treatment of, you know, women's basketball players as well, right? And that the huge kerfuffle a couple of years ago with the training facilities and the gym. Say that. It's just ridiculous. I mean, what are we thinking here, right? Um, and so for the U.S. women, they definitely had a legitimate argument for sure. Um, you, all sports things, and again, this is collegiate, professional, um, international institutions like that one and the IOC, um, they have tons of money, right? Um, it's, and so they make conscious or you know, fail to make conscious decisions about how they're going to spend it, about the rules that they're going to create. Um, and the, the rules in sport are all artificial, right? We make them up, right? We're in this experiment with baseball this year where they're changing these rules. And the sun came out, you know, uh, when the <laughs> season started. And so far, you know, I have to say it was pretty interesting to see my first game with, you know, pitch clock and all that kind of stuff. Um and so I think it'll work out. The same thing has to do with these equity issues, right? Um, we can decide to pay women more. We have the revenue. Let's do the right thing. And we generally know what the right thing is, right? Um, for USA Soccer to make the claim that, you know, it's apples and oranges because the men's men are compensated more in their particular leagues or, you know, that they generate more revenue, and therefore, you know, they're going to be paid on a different scale. All of that is true, but it can be the same pot of money and they can decide how to allocate it much more fairly. So they were trying to make an argument that it was all just numbers and it certainly isn't. Okay. And in almost every sport, that's the case. But yeah, Our, I think it was, sorry. Go ahead. Well, no. And I think that also now you see it's hugely exciting to me uh, now that I am this, you know, crazy soccer fan to see, uh, you know, women's soccer in Europe just exploding. Um, and again, you know, I've always been very proud of, of the arsenal and how well their women's teams have done historically, you know, still the most successful teams in um, in English women's soccer uh, and the crowds that they're attracting. And now, you know, everybody and in Barcelona and Real Madrid and PSG. And so, 
you know, it's great to see that the women's game is getting much more attention and the fans are turning out because, you know, I'm, I'm sure we had the same discussion when you guys were sitting in the sports class that, you know, we have to vote with our feet and with our wallets, right? I mean, if we go to these games and we pay for this, the merchandise and the tickets and the concessions, women's sport is going to be, you know, is going to be uh, on a par with men's sport in terms of revenue and finances, right? Um, but we have to make that conscious decision. And so, you know, I'm always challenging students, you know, I'm asking them, so who watched the the women's NCAA tournament this, you know, this this week, or, you know, who's watching this match, or did you see this, or did you go and see, you know, Lakers uh, women's lacrosse this weekend, right? Um, because that's the only way that uh, we're going to start to see, you know, some measure of um, balance in terms of finance. We, we're the ones, we're the fans. We need to do that. Right. But it's, it is heartening that it, it's starting to happen. As far as the NFL goes, you know, I've kind of felt like it's almost become like an athletic dictatorship to a certain extent where the owners have all the power, right? Goodell, and the owners, they, whatever they say, it's like a heavy hand and that's it. And the players, I don't feel like, you know, in the last round of negotiations, the players seemed like they just kind of bowed and said, whatever you want, you know, type of thing. Is it, has it, has, does it feel like it's that way? Do you feel like it, it's always going to be that way where it's just like, the, cause it's the NFL is such a powerful machine that they can just do whatever they want, whenever they want. <laughs> it does seem like that. doesn't it? <laughs> um, well, you know, again, this goes all the way. I've been talking about this in that sports class forever that uh, to me, you know, we watch the sports to watch the athletes, right? We don't watch to see who's in the luxury box and what the owners are doing. Um, and football has always been, all the sports have been so heavily tilted in favor of the owners. Um, the NFL, especially, uh, you know, they don't open the books to the players association. We don't really know very well what the revenue side is. Um, and so it's almost impossible for them to have fair and equitable negotiations about compensation or workplace conditions or, or you know, brain injuries or anything else. Um, and as much as I'd love to see that change, I don't know if it ever is going to because, and the NFL is the worst. I mean, if you look at player contracts, look at player compensation, um, you know, it's, they're the most injured. They have the shortest careers. They have the shortest lifespans. It seems like they're, and again, there's so much revenue. This is another one where there's so much revenue. You can't tell me the owners aren't making money. If the commanders are going to get sold for $6 billion, <laughs> there's a lot of money. Um, but again, how do we allocate that money? Right. So we're not, and this is part and parcel of the social and cultural history of sport, right? We, we don't take care in America of workers. And so we're not going to take care of football workers either. Um, and we take care of, you know, the wealthy and the powerful. And that's what the NFL does too, right? They take care of themselves. Um, Roger Goodell is going to get a new contract because he does what the owners want him to do, right? Um, it's disheartening because you have, football athletes. I mean, I, there should be contracts and, you know, some sort of compensation for this player. The minute you make the NFL, you should be guaranteed some sort of, you know, health care benefits yeah. and some sort of pension program um, that's generous. Right. Um, and they just don't have that. And I don't know how the players 
I mean, they've gone on strike, right? Um, they haven't been able to really get what I consider to be fair and equitable treatment from the owners. And I don't really see how they're going to, especially now, because the threat was always that, you know, for any of these professional sports, they basically operate as monopolies, right? And um, if for some reason Congress wanted to step in and prevent them from operating that way, they could. Um, but they always push it right up to the limit before Congress gets involved. And so that means that, again, we have owners who can exploit workers. So it doesn't look like it's going to change anytime soon. And it's just, it's sad and unfortunate when, you know, you watch the, you know, level of play in the NFL, um, it's, it's incredible, right? I mean, 53 players on those rosters, which is also ridiculously small when you think about it week in and week out. And then, you know, in on any given play, your career is over. So it's very disheartening. Um, but it is a reflection again of kind of the way we treat and have treated labor in America, right? It's, uh, was, uh, you know, my wife is an attorney, so, you know, she like, you know, fills me with all of these like tidbits, but you know, what is it? It's like a willful employment, you know, environment in America. You can, any of us can be fired on any you know day. So that is, that is the way it is. Uh, you know, we don't take, we don't do a great job taking care of one another for the most part. Yeah. At will employment will, you know, you can at will, you exactly. go whenever you, whenever you want. And it's, I mean, the NFL, right. Went back a few years ago to the concussions and then with the, with, like you said, with the uh, uh, health insurance, right. With the retired players, not, not giving them the right, the, the, the health insurance that they need when it's been proven the, the amount of uh, hits that they take causes, yeah. you know, major brain injuries or whatever. Exactly. Yeah, no, it's uh, yeah. I, it's hard. It boggles the mind that they can get away with it, but they can get away with it. Cause we really don't, we don't pay attention. You know, if, Again, this yeah. is something that we could do something about, right? I mean, if fans really wanted to do something for the players, which, you know, when is that ever going to happen, right? When when players do go out on strike in any sport, the fans are always down on the players, right? It's like, oh, my God, look how much they get paid. Look at what they get. You know, oh, my gosh, my tickets are outrageous. I paid $15 for a beer last week, you know, all this stuff. Mm-hmm. Um but it's not the players, right? It's the owners. They, we don't get it. And so if we really wanted to force change, we could do that, right? We just wouldn't go, right? And in baseball, we did, you know, fans did do that after the, the big strike year um, for a little while. But then, you know, we came back. Uh, and I think baseball situation is is better than, than football's for sure. But if we really wanted to change something for football, that's what we do. The fans could could do that. We could boycott it. And that yeah. would uh, facilitate change, but I don't. Again, I don't think we will. Can baseball become America's pastime again, or is it basically football? Just is football now become America's pastime, and it's too far ahead, and it'll never turn back. Yeah, I mean, really, you know, we talk about this in class, and you know, in the '60s, football just becomes this social and cultural phenomenon, right? And it's now so entrenched in American consciousness and culture and calendar um, that I really don't think it's going to, that's going to get supplanted in the United States in any, in the foreseeable future. Um, You know, the beauty of baseball is the 162 game season. Um, 
and, you know, the opportunity to see the ebbs and flows during the course of the season. But that's also tough because it's tough to sustain, you know, diehard fans are going to be into it. Right. Um, you know, but I, I have to admit because, because I'm an Orioles fan last year, I was excited. I had a year to, I I could actually pay attention past (laughs) April, right? Like things were actually happening. We might get into playoffs, you know, I'm like, but then even then I'm like, how can I like, you know, bemoan Seattle, like the Mariners fans are almost as bad a shape as I am. So, um, so last year was, you know, special season, but, uh, and we'll see what happens this year. Um, but for most fans, you know, to have a 17, you know, a 14, 16, 17 game season, it, it's just easier with those, you know, although now, you know, with Monday, Thursday and, you know, Wednesday morning at 830, yeah. over coffee and the big <laughs> games, you know, again, if the owners have their way, right. Um, <laughs> But it's just easier to sustain, you know, that kind of effort and intensity, I think, uh, for a shorter span of time than, you know, base, than you can for baseball um, or hockey or basketball. I mean, those are ridiculous seasons, too. Right. I mean, now the playoffs just start tonight for hockey and we know what we're doing for the till end of June. Right. Um, that's a really long season. Uh, so I think the NFL, the, you know, kind of by fortune kind of stumbled into that. Um, but then it is such a, you know, such a perfect game for television also that they're not going to knock it off the pedestal when Sunday night football is, you know, eight out of the top 10 television programs for the year. Right. I mean, it's incredible. Yeah. Even Chris Collinsworth can't screw it up. I mean, come on. (laughs) (laughs) What are you doing to you? (laughs) I didn't say that. You'll edit that out, will you? Yeah, we'll edit that out. He's probably got a mob someplace. (laughs) Look at the bright side. The Orioles have a a lot of good prospects right now. They do. They do. They do. It was fun to watch the young guys and, you know, like everybody, it's, it's always the pitching. So we'll see what happens. You know, in the glory days of my youth, when the Orioles were winning World Series, you know, it was with the Jim Palmers and the Dave McNally's and the Mike Cuellar's <laughs> and the, with pitching, you know. So now we'll yeah. see if Adley and Cedric and Ryan Mountcastle can hit enough home runs to uh, to keep us competitive. We'll see. All right, Professor Mack, one more question before we get you out of here. Uh, and we really do appreciate your time uh, hanging out with us uh, for this episode. Um, do you have a proudest moment as a teacher? Jeez, oh, might be right now for crying out loud. Are you kidding me? Um, no, that's the, the beautiful part, though, is like um, you don't know how as a, a teacher, uh, you don't really know what impact you have on people. Um, you know, you can have a good semester. You can have, you know, good few good classes in a row or whatever. And you ha- get to have students like yourselves, you know, hopefully, you know, for four years. And so you get to see people, you know, across campus, um, uh, even when they're not in your class. Right. Um, but it, like when you get to come back for something like this and see you guys, oh, grown up, I'm so proud. <laughs> no, but it's cool that, you know, you're doing this thing and that, you know, at least some of the things that we talked about, you know, obviously resonated and you're still thinking about those things. And those are the things that blow me away. And, you know, I'm I'm not the best uh, person at like keeping in touch with people. And I kind of like, you know, I'm not a big LinkedIn guy and I don't have any social media stuff. And so when I do like get a chance to talk to students or students talk to me and, you know, people will go out of their way to send me an email and say, you know, 
Dr. Mack, I, we did this thing in History 100, um, you know, this, that, you know, thinker, philosopher or whatever, or, you know, in the sports class, um, you know, when I kind of do my thing at the end, my shtick at the end, when I've talked about, you know, what are sports for, what are sports for, and everybody's like entertainment and, you know, nachos and wings. And, um, but I think that, you know, <laughs> the sports class to me and sports are where we really get to see human greatness, right? We're, you know, day in and day out every day on, you know, every day on Sports Center, we get to see, you know, top 10 plays and people do spectacular freaking things right every day. And we're kind of like, yeah, well, you know, just another day on Sports Center. But that's what we're what we're here for. Right. I mean, that's the beauty of human beings. We can be such miserable, terrible, rotten, uh, you know, people to one another. But then we can do these absolutely fantastic and marvelous things. Um, and if we just stop for a minute and revel in it, you know, whether it's a, a kid's youth soccer game, um, you know, a high school basketball game, uh, an NFL game, soccer match, you know, uh, you know, and again, that's the beauty, I think, too, of sport, you know, baseball, when if you're a baseball fan and you're watching that duel between the pitcher and the batter, you know, now on the clock. Um, but it's just, you know, the niceties of it, uh, you know, and the paying attention, learning how to pay attention. Those are the things I think are spectacular. And so for me, teaching wise, um, you know, when people pick up on those little things and they start to filter their way back through the things that they do and the decisions that they make and the way that they live, then that's hugely rewarding. Right. Um, so that's very cool. We really appreciate having you on for this episode. And I wish we'd go like four or five hours with you, but you know, <laughs> no, no, no. I, I think we could, but uh, I think we'll uh, only take a break. <laughs> no, thanks very much guys for your patience. And I mean, really, it's awesome that you asked me to do it. Um, you know, I hope that we, I, that didn't scare too many people away. Really appreciate you guys talking to me and it's been great uh, seeing you all again and talking to you. And that was Dr. Christopher Mack, a professor of history at SUNY Oswego. Uh, we all three of us have taken his class on the history of sports uh, and, uh, you know, many other classes, as a matter of fact, that I've taken as well. I don't know about you guys, but I, I enjoy him so much. Uh, obviously, uh, you know, like he said, things that, you know, we heard from him uh, during the classes resonated with us. And I think that was pretty obvious uh, during this interview. Absolutely. And it, it, it is, you know, by presenting history through the prism of sports, it makes it instantly recognizable yes. and, and relatable, I think, for, for all of us. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I never took a class with him other than that one, I, I don't believe. Um, but I don't actually think I appreciated it as much then as I do now, believe it or not. For sure. Uh, yeah. So that was an absolute joy for us. Um and if you didn't listen to our last episode with Mark Cunningham, the purchasing manager for SUNY Oswego Dining Services, please do so. And uh, as always, you can reach us at uh, by email, throwingbagelspodcast at gmail.com. And you can listen to our podcast on throwingbagels.com. Please go out there, check out the blog. And by the time this comes out, there will be another blog. So there will be blogs of the episodes, wherever you get your podcasts, throwingbagels.com. Did I miss anything? Twitter, no, throw, throw a bagel pod and, and Facebook, LinkedIn, throw bagels and Facebook and, and LinkedIn and everywhere and the news, right? Newsletter. So right, by the, the time every month, yeah. you, by the time you hear this, uh, we will have had, we will have released our April newsletter. We do it once a month. So at the end of the month, 
Uh, we'll recap everything we've done for that month. So make sure you head to our website, throwingbagels.com and uh, sign up for that newsletter. Great. And uh, that's where you'll hear me stumble around even more. <laughs> Appreciate you guys. 